Welcome to the Virtual Shift, a show looking at the seismic changes happening in healthcare with virtual care at the epicenter. Join me and my guests as we look at key cultural and policy shifts impacting how providers, payers, and patients connect, as well as how care is being reimagined both for today and the future. Hello, and thanks for tuning in today. I'm your host, Tom Foley. You can learn more about this show by visiting the program on healthcarenowradio.com, and be sure to follow me on LinkedIn, Twitter, at FoleyTom, and the hashtag, The Virtual Shift. We have a great guest on the program today, Shomi Saha. She is the Senior Vice President of Government Affairs at Premier Inc., which is a technology and supply chain company. Shomi, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Tom. Awesome. So, Shomi, I read an article from Healthcare Innovations. It was entitled Premier's Advocacy Director Shomi Shaha on Policy Prospects in the New Congress. Everything in healthcare gets driven by uh, regulations. I always say nothing happens in healthcare unless there's a CPT code associated to it. And you made some very interesting references uh, to that. But before we get into the article in and of itself and some of the compelling points that you made, tell me a little bit about, and, and our audience, a little bit about yourself and, and, and your role at Premier. Of course. So I'm the Senior Vice President of Government Affairs. I lead our Washington, D.C. office and our advocacy efforts. By way of background, I'm a pharmacist with a law degree. I've been in the D.C. advocacy world for over two decades now. Our team focuses on four primary buckets of areas that we advocate on in D.C. around optimizing the value of healthcare, building resilient healthcare supply chains, tech enabling healthcare, and eliminating gaps in healthcare. We have a wonderful team of about a dozen individuals who support these advocacy efforts across our congressional and regulatory agencies as well. Uh, a very critical role. I, I, I know that you play a nonpartisan role in your advocacy, which is awesome and great. And I'm going to get into that need for bipartisanship, as you referenced in the article, which I think is also uh, critical relative to getting anything materially out of uh, Congress in the next couple of years. So tell us a little bit about what you believe the greatest challenges are with your members relative to reimbursements and, and things of that nature. So Premier works alongside about 4,400 hospitals and health systems and about 250,000 continuum of care providers. Right now, the universal challenges that folks are facing, regardless of whether they're acute or non-acute, are fourfold. One, that financial viability providers are very much struggling coming out of the public health emergency. You're seeing the headlines around the negative margins that most of these providers are facing right now. That is then coupled with the labor challenges that they are all facing, the shortages of both clinical and non-clinical staff and how they staff the beds moving forward. Third is a lot of supply chain challenges. Everybody in healthcare right now is having difficulty accessing the products that they need at the right time for the right patient. And those supply chain challenges are moved beyond just drugs into medical devices as well. And the fourth area I'd like to point out is this continual burden that the regulatory environment places on providers, much of which is very archaic, was really built for a fee-for-service type of system, still a lot of faxes and papers and manual processes, and not really looking into a 21st century process. So that burden coupled with that financial viability and the lack of staffing is really starting to create this perfect storm in healthcare. And isn't that the the problem? I, I think you just nailed it in the context of 
we want and encourage health systems to trans- transform, but they're laden with regulatory constraints that are of old world delivery health systems. You know, I I, uh, I came into the health system health industry 22 years ago, uh, just pr- prior to EHRs being adopted. You know, and if you look at it, you know, so we've made massive investments, right, in EHRs. We we transition. We try we try to go at risk, uh, interoperability. We're now 12 years later, roundabout, and we still have challenges with misuse of the emergency room. Uh, readmissions, errors in delivery that some many caused by the EHR in and of itself from an interoperability and record matching uh, perspective. It's just challenging for health systems to ultimately achieve the desired results, uh, but yet with uh, with the cinder blocks on their coattails because of regulatory. So with that, when you look at advocacy and regulatory where do you see regulations we could uh, establish over the next year where it would make a material difference in how health systems operate? Yeah, I'll give you one primary example, and one that we've been working on is around prior authorization. So prior authorization is a necessary to ensure that patients receive the appropriate care at the right time and to ensure that all other options have been looked at prior to perhaps going to a more expensive or a more invasive treatment option. The challenge that historically has been there is that that requires faxing papers back and forth, sharing of data between the provider and the payer, and a decision tree that typically takes several days to weeks to occur. Unfortunately, that means delays in patient care and inhibiting patient access. And we need to remember that the patient is central to everything that we do. So one of the areas that Premier and others have been working on in D.C. is looking at how we advocate for electronic prior authorization. So, number one, electronic sharing of that information to eliminate that arduous paper trail so that information is collected. And then also going beyond electronic sharing of information to really look at real-time decision-making. So when a payer knows the criteria that they're going to be leveraging to make a decision, how do you preload that into a system so that as information is coming from the provider, the checklist goes automatically to say, yes, green, go ahead, please proceed. Perhaps yellow, you know what, we need a little bit more information from you before we can make that coverage determination versus a red light that says, you know, unfortunately, this patient did not meet criteria for this procedure. Here's the alternate approach. So not only just electronic sharing of information, but getting to that real-time clinical decision support so that we alleviate that burden, improve patient access, improve patient outcomes. I, I would agree with you. I, I read a, a business plan actually just yesterday on prior authorization, right? And the, the, the problem was that any provider's office spends 13 to 20 hours a week just handling prior authorizations. It's just a burden in and of itself. And I thought I read an article, uh, there was a proposal on the table to have prior authorizations in place by 2025, 26. Did I get that right? Yeah, so this, this past week on Tuesday, we saw CMS come out with a regulatory proposal to do exactly that, to require prior authorization across several government payers, including Medicare Advantage plans, Medicaid and CHIP, 
um, to really look at electronic prior authorization. But again, they're really focusing on that electronic sharing of information. We really like to see them take it a step further and really focusing on that real-time decision-making as well. So comments on that are due March 13th. We're going to be working um, on making sure we have some feedback to CMS. There's also some legislative proposals that are looking at very similar things. And this is a perfect example where there's certain aspects that uh, the, the administration can leverage their regulatory authority to make happen, like they are in this proposed rule, but there's still certain areas that are going to require statutory authority. So it's really making sure that Congress and the agencies are working together to achieve that end goal. So uh, what caught my eye more than anything, uh, I'm all for the uh, improvement of workflows and processes and leveraging technology and things of that nature. But it was shocking that we had to wait for until 2025, 26 for that to be realized. Now, the, the, the point there being is there's an opportunity where regulation it, it continues to be an inhibitor. Why wait, if you will, right? So, you know, because in the private sector, and when there's a problem, it gets up and uh, there's a little bit more nimbleness, if you will, to address it. And I know health systems push back a lot relative to, you know, I, I was involved with meaningful use stage one, stage two, stage three. And there was always the pushback of we need more time. But more time, is that not what has caused us to be where we are? We, we still need more time to be innovative. I think it's a, it's a kind of an oxymoron in that there's a lot of things in front of us that we could do as opposed to relying on regulations. It just seems that we're still stuck in this fee-for-service model. And uh, while we're trying to get the value and or trying to get to how do we engage that patient more so now than we ever have. Uh, your thoughts on that? Yeah. You know, one thing I often speak about and an analogy I use is that healthcare providers throughout the country it feels are constantly on this hamster wheel where they're fighting the next cut to their reimbursement. So every six months, every 90 days, we're constantly on this hamster wheel talking about, please keep us whole. We are in a situation right now where providers are facing an upwards of a 10% cut before the end of the year if Congress does not act. And the question, of course, is how long will Congress act for? Right now, the thought is probably going to be a short-term continuing resolution that kind of kicks the can for a week or a few weeks, and then maybe an omnibus through September 30th, 2023. Again, that's not even a full year of relief, best case scenario. And when you're constantly on that hamster wheel trying to understand if you're going to be reimbursed at your costs or anywhere even remotely close to your costs, which is not happening today, there's an epic delta between where costs are and where reimbursement is. It doesn't provide you the opportunity to sit down and get to the ultimate goal of truly transforming healthcare because you are always chasing something that will always require chasing. And so one of Premier's asks to Congress this year has been, please make providers whole for two years. Give them two solid years of a runway to allow them to, one, unwind from the public health emergency and figure out what the new normal is in this post-pandemic world. And two, to get to that list that's kind of been in the back of their mind as part of this nice to-do list around how they truly transform healthcare, how they think about patient access and wellness differently. We have to give them the opportunity and time to innovate. And we just have not given them that opportunity yet. 
I can't agree with you more. Uh, the the hamster wheel analogy is is perfect. You know, before the pandemic, the notion was value, value, value. And uh, so, how do you go from a fee for service model to a value based care model? There's this financial transition that you have to go through, right? And if you're preoccupied, if you will, with all due respect, uh, with the challenges within the market, then you, you, to your point, you don't have that time to step back and say, hey, how, do, how am I going to transition my financial model uh, from X to Y, right? And, and go in the direction that everybody wants to. But, but instead, you know, we had this pandemic and telehealth actually came out of that saying, hey, you know, this works. Mikey likes it. So at the end of the day, it's not just about video now, right? It's, it's really about virtual care services. How do I engage that patient on a more frequent basis and engage so the uh, so I can appreciate within health systems the the challenge of cost impact, but the idea that uh, the, the the macro trends have always been the same, right? It's now coming forefront very quickly, right? Uh, the average medic uh, the we have an older, ager, sicker, growing population, less doctors and nurses. We've all known that trend for for years, right? Question then is. How do you deliver care in that setting? It's not always about value-based care. There's always ways to engage the home as a setting of care, hospital at home models. So your members are challenged with, and I know Premier is doing a lot of good work relative to telehealth, bringing on contractors like myself, actually, full disclosure, I'm from GNEMD. Uh, I am a a Premier uh, supply contractor for remote patient monitoring and uh, telehealth. But they're, and they're doing a lot of good work in that particular space. But hospitals, to your to your point, I I think are still on that hamster wheel. There's a lot of other services that CMS has authorized, but yet hospitals aren't embracing. It just seems like more can be done to move in that direction. And I think what you're saying is, hey, give us two years, you know, and some custom regulations that are old school, if you will, and let hospital systems be innovative, more innovative than what they already are. Your yeah, thoughts? I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say that hospitals are hesitant, right? It's more about giving them the opportunity to really think through what worked and what didn't work over the past two and a half years. What are those lessons learned? Because a lot of those regulatory waivers and flexibilities that were provided were critical. So if you think about the hospital at home waiver, for example, That allowed providers to care for patients outside of the four walls of a hospital. And as this population continues to age, and as we look at an aging population with all the workforce challenges that are going to be going on, we've got to get creative on how we provide care for patients. We are currently looking at that hospital at home program, for example. Does it need to truly be hospital at home or are there opportunities for us to look at creating a new standard of care that's a little bit more than a traditional home care, but not as stringent as hospital at home? And that's kind of this new normal, new area that we can test and then scale nationally as we continue our learnings. And it's really for hospitals about how they are coordinating care across the entire continuum. It's no longer just about acute care. It's about that 360 degree view into the patient. How are you coordinating care when they're before they come into the hospital, after they leave the hospital? And it's all about transitioning from a sickness based healthcare system to a wellness based healthcare system. 
the ultimate goal for a hospital is for every single bed to be empty because that means patients are healthy in the community and that they're thriving. And that's the ultimate goal. Yeah, I again, it must be the fact that we're both from Jersey uh, that that makes us think alike in this way. But the idea that it's not about bed utilization anymore. It's about wellness and it's about access to care. I ultimately say I don't I think that there is an access to care problem for sure in many different ways. And I've had talked about that on a program. I really think the bigger problem is access to a cure. And the point there being is in that 8,745 hours that I often talk about when I'm not in front of my doctor, that's where wellness is going to happen. In that time frame, as I've talked to some folks on this program, you go down to a corner store and they have 65 different flavors of beer, but and they have potato chips and pretzels, but they don't have apples and oranges and, and lettuce and tomatoes, right? Mm-hmm. There's, there's not, the healthy foods aren't available. So the, the question is, is there more that we can do regulatory-wise that allows the nation to think more on a healthy basis versus drinking that can of soda? That's not good for you. Yeah, and I think a lot of hospitals and health systems are doing that right now by addressing food insecurity, for example, providing healthy meals for the patients that are in their accountable care organizations, for example, really embracing that wellness-based challenge to see how they keep patients healthy. We also saw the administration a few months ago outline their nutritional blueprint, which asks uh, the Innovation Center at CMS to test this concept of food as medicine for example. And so we're really looking forward to what the innovation comes forward with from that, because those are exactly what you're talking about. Not only how do we address these food deserts that exist throughout the country, but how do we create programs and incentives for folks to not only make sure that they're getting food, but that they're getting nutritious food? Yeah, I I don't mean to be uh, pushing back here, but the idea that we have to study that is just absurd to me. Uh, to be totally frank and transparent. And the point here is this, if we always argue to follow the science, if we haven't done studies today on the quality of our food system, then all of those studies are have been framed to be of no value. We all know that eating healthy is the right thing to do, right? So the point there being is if wellness is based on access to quality foods, then we should focus on that and not have to wait five years for a study. And I think this is really part of where government gets in the way. We know the science. We know that you know drinking water versus a Coke is, with all due respect, and I love Coke, but nonetheless, the uh, it, drinking water at minimally is better than drinking Coke, right? And we know that uh, eating a uh, a salad is much better than fried chicken. We we know this. And uh, Dr. Chris Chen was on the program. A while back, and if you read his uh, great book, The Calling, he calls out this uh, experience with the patient where she's uh, a bit obese and uh, wanting to, uh, he wanted to understand why, right? So he goes through the, uh, the progression of questions, and then it, three months later, the, the patient comes back with the, with the daughter, and the daughter educates him on the fact that mom eats a bucket of chicken at midnight every night. Right. So the point there being is, well, why didn't you tell me that? Right. And the, and the patient says, well, you didn't ask me. So the point there being is behavioral change, wellness and the transformation of care doesn't start with the doctor. Doesn't it start with the patient, with the consumer, 
Um, I think it's actually a dual role. There's a, a level of transparency that the patient has to be willing to share, but it's also just as much on the provider to create an environment where that patient feels safe being honest and sharing information openly and isn't afraid that this is going to be a punitive discussion. Yes. That's the challenge, I think, is that, you know, again, we've been so focused on this sickness-based healthcare system and refocusing that healthcare system to be more wellness-based means that we as providers also need to be coaching patients differently and soliciting information from patients differently. And a lot of times it's about finding compromise Okay, maybe you give up the chicken every day except for Friday, or maybe you're still allowed a soda every once in a while. Eat one piece, yeah, eat one piece at midnight, not three pieces, right? You kind of wean yourself off. Uh, So, yeah, I agree. It's just a matter of, you know, legislatively, regulatory-wise, we always have this budget-neutral mindset, right? But uh, uh, the government can be its greatest investor, so you have to spend a little bit more in the outset to get the, the start to see the curve go down in the context of spend and the curve go up in the context of greater state of wellness, right? That's an investment that, that we make, but it always comes into, at a price of being budget neutral. So to your point, we have to make cuts, we have to make cuts, but making cuts is really because we have more people in the system and the same amount of money to pay for everything, I, I would think. But, uh, and I think from a legislative perspective, we don't have a very good way of quantifying future outcomes from a dollar's perspective. And so a lot of how things are budgeted and talked about from a dollar's perspective of what costs money versus saves money is that immediate impact, right? Patient gets a hip replacement, they're going to be able to go back to work. That absenteeism is going to go down because they're healthy. And there's, there's an immediate yeah. correlation there. What we're not good at doing as a country yet is thinking through how me providing wellness services for a patient for two to five years now impacts them 30 years from now. And we're not good at building those correlations. You just nailed it, right? So I am over uh, 55 and, you know, that's where, uh, uh, what's the number? 60, 65, forget what the number is, but, you know, 80% of the dollars is spent on chronic conditions in the older population. There are ways to mitigate that spend. There's ways uh, people uh, who have diabetes, and my father had diabetes and had every complication imaginable to that. You know, the the new news is that just because you have diabetes doesn't mean you have to die with it. There are ways out, right? And there's uh, studies and programs that can show a patient their way out. Uh, you can look at the, uh, the Biggest Loser, if you watched that show many moons ago, is a perfect example of under doctor supervision, diet and exercise does produce uh, good results for a patient, right? That's the outcome of that uh, that learning. But the point here is that there's a dual-pronged strategy, I would think, relative to the legislative process. You have what you have in the 65 and older community, with all due respect. I'm, I'm approaching that age, that minimum age as well. But you're not going to, you're not going to, there, there, there's not going to be any nirvana there in the context of yeah, how we spend. We have to start, to your point, this is a 30-year swing. It takes a lot of patience to right. handle that swing. It's just, This is how we start with our newborns and, and, and even uh, prenatal care and, you know, and, and caring for them through the years so that they mitigate the development of chronic conditions because right now six out of 
10 adults have at least one uh, and four out of 10 have two or more. So to your point, I think uh, we are challenged with short-term thinking budgetary-wise versus long-term strategy thinking relative to how do we actually fix the problem, right? Which inquire, requires a collaboration between health systems and patients. Would you, you agree or disagree? No, I agree with that. It's a very, it has to be a collaborative approach. I think it's not just only that we're unable to really quantify that from a budget perspective. There's also this risk factor that we live in a community that's very transient. So your payers are going to switch multiple times throughout the lifespan of a human. You're probably going to switch geographical locations many times throughout your lifetime as well. And so how do you invest in someone early with the realization that perhaps you're not going to be the one who reaps the benefits years later? It's someone else's benefit. And so that's where it comes into that shared goal, right? We all have to share this goal of elevating the health of our community. And it's not about who's the winner, who's the loser. It's about what are the investments that we are all making towards that end goal. Well said. Absolutely. So we have about two minutes left. What are your greatest hopes in the next year from an advocacy legislative outcomes perspective? So I may be one of the only people in D.C. that's excited about divided government. Um, You know, in my experience, more actually tends to get done in divided uh, Congress because it forces both sides to come to the table to negotiate, to find those areas of commonality. Both sides need wins before the next election, so they have to find some common ground. I think healthcare is one of those areas where there is so much common ground. Um, So we're actually excited to see what comes out of the 118th Congress. I'm also excited to see what the Biden administration does more from a regulatory perspective. They've been a little risk averse these first two years and really leveraging their regulatory authority. Um, So I'm hopeful that, you know, we've gotten past the phase of requests for information from the Biden administration. And now we're going to see a lot of those RFIs over the course of the next two years as well. So I actually think it's going to be a really exciting time in healthcare to see what happens over the course of the next two years, both from congressional and the regulatory side as well. Yeah, I am optimistic that a split government produces a moderate government uh, where we can find common ground in the middle and, and best serve the, uh, the people that sent them there. So I, I would agree. I, I have to end it there. I, I really want to thank you for your time and, and service because advocacy is, uh, I used to do legislative advocacy in education back in Jersey, and uh, it, is a, it is a challenge to be able to speak up and be persistent and to drive uh, positive change. And I think uh, based on this conversation, I haven't met you before this, but uh, you are spot on. And I am hopeful that you will be successful in some of the things that uh, you've, you've advocated for. So I want to thank you again for participating in the program. Thank you for having me, Tom. Appreciate it. I want to thank the show sponsors. HP, HP Engage Long Life Cycle Products provides the stability, safety, and security you need, plus flexibility and performance designed for today and tomorrow. As well, GenieMD, providing a modular, scalable, and customizable virtual care platform and clinical services to help providers extend care into the home, increasing access and quality while driving new revenue opportunities. 
If you missed part of today's episode, you can tune in at the same time, 11 a.m. or 7 p.m. Eastern, throughout the week, and be sure to check out the program page on healthcarenowradio.com. And remember, connect or follow me on LinkedIn, Twitter, at Foley Tom, and follow the show's hashtag, The Virtual Shift. I'm Tom Foley. Until the next shift.